Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Scotsman Andy Nielsen left his native Glasgow in 1977 to come to Hong Kong after five years as a Royal Marine. He came here for a three-year contract with the Royal Hong Kong Police Force. With his then-wife and long-time business partner, Laura McAllister, he would found the pubs Mad Dogs and Joe Bananas. He also followed his passion for modern soldiers and is the co-founder and creative director of King & Country. Andy Nielsen admits he would never have seen himself as an old China hand as he looks back over 40 years in Hong Kong to the day when he arrived. I remember it was hot and sticky. It wasn't actually raining. We, we arrived in the evening, and the first thing that hit me in the old days at Kai Tak, when the, the door of the plane opened to allow us to disembark, was the smell. And uh, it's been described sometimes as the smell of money, but in actual fact, I think it was the smell of the Kai Tak nuller, which was <laughs> pretty obnoxious. That was the thing that hit me, and just the heat, the, the humidity. In London, I joined the Royal Hong Kong Police. So myself and 22 other guailos and assorted wives, not too many girlfriends, flew out to start our training at police training school out at Wong Chuk Hang. And before that, you were a Royal Marine? Correct. I'd, I'd been in the Royal Marines for five years, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And previous to that, I'd worked in, of all things, advertising and graphic design. So it's a bit of a strange mixture because normally not many people have an artistic trend and are necessarily interested in the military, but it just so happened I was. So you're a former Marine and uh, police officer. You're a painter. You, you uh, yeah. um, enjoy working in models, which became your business. And uh, you also helped co-found two famous bars here. So in Infamous, you might say. <laughs> uh, yeah, Joe jo Bananas and Mad Dogs, along with um, my ex-wife, Laura, who is still my business partner. We've been divorced many a year. We've both remarried, happily remarried, but we're still the best of friends and we're still business partners. When you arrived in Hong Kong, you had a three-year contract with the Royal Hong Kong Police. Yeah. So what was your role? Uh, well, obviously, most guailos that joined in those days, all guailos that joined in those days, it was a commissioned rank. So first of all, you had to do eight months of police training school. And after that, you'd be commissioned as a junior inspector. And the whole idea was you would then go on, after police training school, go to a different station or you'd be put into uniform branch or detective work or what have you. But I, I realised pretty quickly that I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole. I loved Hong Kong. I, I've still got huge respect for the police. But I decided it wasn't for me, so I resigned. The funny thing was, in those days... When you resigned from the police, you were sent to traffic division for some reason. But my boss at the time said, look, I see from your file that you, you did graphic design at college and you worked in advertising briefly. Let me see if I can speak to a friend of mine. This friend of mine was a guy called Drew Rennie. He was the head of police public relations uh, in police headquarters. Drew was also from Glasgow. So Drew very kindly took me on board to work my three months notice at PPRB, designing leaflets, posters, anything that the police required. So what was that, sort of anti-shoplifting posters, don't, don't jaywalk? 
it, it was everything and including it was all of that plus there was a little police magazine I don't know if it's still going called Offbeat and I did a, a strip cartoon for that as well which get banned after four issues <laughs> I think it was too close to the bone but the good thing out of that was at the end of the three months Drew then said look I'll speak to the guys at GIS Government Information Services and see if they require anyone and Arthur Hacker, a well-known Hong Kong name, the late Arthur Hacker, great guy, he saw me, saw my portfolio, and he offered me a six-month temporary contract. And at the same time, Laura had got a job, as many police wives did in those days, in a place called the Bull and Bear pub in Central, in Hutchison House. So she was working there. I was in GIS everything started to look brighter. In your non-paid time, you were also a Hong Kong volunteer. I always enjoyed the military life. One morning, I was listening to RTHK, actually, and there was an interview on a Saturday morning with the adjutant of the regiment, and he was saying that they were looking for volunteers. It was the Royal Hong Kong. Royal Hong Kong Regiment, brackets, the volunteers. It was effectively a, a TA, Territorial Army Regiment, here in Hong Kong. And which I think more than a good sort of 250 died during the Second World War defending Hong Kong, yeah. or about 280, I think. So um, in 1977 or thereabouts in 1980, um, what was the role of a volunteer? Well, the volunteers really were, were partly to support the regular army that was here. Uh, we had the Gurkhas and we always had a, a British battalion as well, but also in support of the police and the civil authorities. So I, I had a dual role and it, it was called out during the uh, emergency in the 1960s when, when you had the riots in Hong Kong. So 95% of the members were all local Hong Kong Chinese with a sort of sprinkling of guaylos such as myself. You decided once you'd, uh, you came out here with a three-year contract for the Royal Hong Kong Police Force, but you decided uh, uh, that it wasn't your thing. Um, but uh, I'm interested, you know, the fact that you're arriving in 1977, that's only three years after the founding of the ICAC. So was there sort of a, a sense of a new brush within the police force at that time? I mean, obviously you heard all of the stories of the bad old days. I'm fortunate that when I came out, most of that really had disappeared. I do remember while I was working in PPRB, there were some disturbances with the rank and file because the ICAC had made a lot of arrests. And at one point, the ICAC office in Hutchison House was attacked by rank and file in civilian clothes. And there was major protests and sit-downs at different uh, stations within Hong Kong. But, but generally speaking the major corruption that had gone on in the bad old days. I think really when Ma Sir Murray McElhose came out as governor and set up the ICAC, I think that was really the beginning of the end of major corruption within the police force. You've been here 40 years. How does that feel? On the one hand, it sometimes seems like the day before yesterday. I can't tell you what happened last week, but I've got great memories of what happened 40 years ago. I never thought I would be one of what they call the old China hands. It's just flown by. I've had some of the best times in my life. I've had some of the worst times in my life. But in balance, more good times than bad. I'm talking to Andy Nielsen, the co-founder and creative director of King & Country, uh, which you may have seen the, the, um, the, the metal mixes, lead. 
It's it's tin, lead, and antimony. And they're little models. Um, it started off as military, but then um, the ones that I've seen here are sort of very much Hong Kong themes and uh, sort of uh, based on Hong Kong streets. So we'll move on to that in a little while. So 40 years ago, you come to Hong Kong for a three-year contract with the Royal Hong Kong Police, move on to PPRB and then on to the Government Information Service. One of the jobs I was doing, one of the freelance jobs, uh, the magazine's still around, it's called Hong Kong Tatler. And I'd gone to them to suggest an idea of, of doing a series called Portraits of Power. And this was basically going to be caricatures, but gentle caricatures, not hatchet jobs, <laughs> on, on the sort of rich and famous of Hong Kong. So that gave me the opportunity to meet some of these people. So give us an example. Oh, um, well, Sir Michael Sandberg, who at the time was head of Hong Kong Bank, through doing the caricatures... That led on to something else. I'd always been interested in painting people. So I had this idea. I'd never had an exhibition before in my life, but I thought, let's, let's try it. So I made a list of about 15 real movers and shakers in Hong Kong from all walks of life that I wanted to paint. And then I literally got in touch with them one by one. The first one I contacted was Simon Murray, who at that time was the Taipan of Hutchison. I knew Simon because uh, he was also... At the same time, I had my toy soldier business, uh, King Country. But at that time, uh, Simon was one of our collectors. He'd been in the shop a few times and bought a few French Foreign Legion soldiers. And I said, look, Simon, I'd like to paint your portrait. So, of course, Simon quite rightly said, well, <laughs> how much am I going to pay for this? I said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to charge you for this. I want to paint your portrait for an exhibition, pure and simple. Oh, okay. So from I, I did Simon's portrait, showed it to him, he liked it. And he said, who else are you going to paint? I said, well, you're a friend of David Tang. Yes. Well, could you put in a good word with me, with David, and maybe make an introduction for me, which he did. So I got to paint David Tang. And it went all the way down the list. Well, I, I wanted to paint Lee Ka Shing, who was Simon's boss. Couldn't get to, get to him, but I got to Richard Lee, the son painted Richard's portrait and then there was a lady called Margaret Tancock she owned a whole string of uh, boutiques in Hong Kong and she also was a person that started body shop in Hong Kong and Margaret was a lovely lady and again through a friend of a friend I painted her, painted Bonnie Goxon to be honest I wanted to paint um, her sister Joyce Ma couldn't get her so I got Bonnie uh, Did you tell Bonnie that? Uh, not in so many words but I painted Willie Purvis. That he was one Willie of the Purvis? best. Yeah, chairman of the Hong Kong Bank, Sir William Purvis, I should say. He was terrific. He was a, a, a great portrait. Michael Kaduri, Stanley Ho, and Jack Edwards. The sadly long uh, a few years gone, but Jack was a, an old friend of mine. Was the big POW campaigner, and he was he had made a real difference in Hong Kong for ordinary people. Jack was very involved in getting pensions for the widows of Hong Kong POWs, although Jack himself was captured at Singapore. He was very much involved with the Hong Kong Association and generally for Far Eastern POWs. Uh, terrific guy. Wonderful character. Great Welshman. The very last portrait in the series that I painted was Chris Patton. Chris Patton, of all the different sitters that I had, I would go along, meet these people, uh, take my sketch pad, do sketches of them, 
take some reference photographs as well and basically do an interview to get some background. And he basically said, look, come up to Government House You can uh, at 6 o'clock. I'm doing some papers in my room. Come in, sit quietly at the corner, sketch away for as long as you like. And uh, we must have been there for about two hours. Maybe they occasionally chat and would you like another cup of coffee or what have you. And he was terrific. And uh, when we had to have the exhibition, I contacted Government House to see whether uh, uh, the governor would uh, open the exhibition, which he did. And where are they now? Well, Chris Patton's portrait is with Chris Patton because several of the people, once they saw the exhibition, wanted to buy their, their portraits and did. And Simon Murray bought his own portrait and also Chris Patton's portrait, which he, I believe he gave to Chris Patton as a gift. Your former wife and business, long-time business partner, uh, Laura McAllister, as a police wife, would work at the Bull and Bear in Central. Now, I remember the Bull and Bear, although it's long gone. I think uh, we were just talking earlier, there's been about six pubs in there since then. Yeah, six pubs and restaurants. The Bull and Bear uh, can almost lay claim to be one of the first really, truly genuine British pubs in Hong Kong. And when I arrived, or re-arrived in 77, it was extremely popular. Laura was working in the Bull and Bear, as many police wives did. She worked there for six years or so and had risen to the dizzy heights of head barmaid. Can you believe this? In this day and age, the Bull and Bear had a policy that women were never put into management. Only men could be managers. Laura got fed up with this. And by this time, we were... I, I was totally freelance. We had our own little graphic design studio. We made quite good money. And one day, Laura said, look... I'm fed up with this. Why don't we open our own pub? So one of my clients was Vigers, the estate agent. So I rang up Gareth Williams, who I think is still in Hong Kong, who was then the, the boss of Vigers. And I said, Gareth, could you find us any premises in Hong Kong Island that might be suitable for a pub, preferably in Central? And he came back a couple of days later and said, yeah, there's an old carpet warehouse up in Wyndham Street. Let's go and have a look at it. So we went, found this old carpet warehouse in a lovely old Victorian building. There was three floors available, which we took, and we converted that into what became the very first Mad Dogs, which was one of the very first establishments in that whole Lang Kwai Fong area in 1984. So Mad Dogs, how did you come up with the name? Well, we wanted a very British name, and of course one of my favourite songs... Uh, by Noel Coward as Mad Dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. Well, because Laura and myself are both Scottish, we weren't going to call it Mad Dogs and Englishmen, so we thought, let's just call it Mad Dogs. Well, it stuck, and you ended up with Central and then Chim Sa Choi. Yep. Um, we, uh, we opened uh, Chim Sa Choi oh, a few years later, and, and, and both were very successful, but in the, the sort of typical Hong Kong story, the building was eventually sold, and we had to find new, a new location for Mad Dogs Central. But the funny thing is, here's a, a, a story I always tell about the one that got away. One year after we opened Mad Dogs, 1985, the landlord, who was American, offered to sell us the entire building for $6 million. Well, didn't have the money. We put all our savings into the, the pub. A year later, he offered it to us for $8 million. By that time, we were already just about to open Joe Bananas, so we didn't have the money again. About another 18 months later, it was 13 million. Didn't have it. 
eventually that building was sold, I believe, to close for 70 to 80 million dollars. So everybody's got a Hong Kong story of the one that got away. But would we still benefit from uh, little soldiers in Hong Kong streets if you'd made that amount of money? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, believe it or not, it's not all about it, it's not all about the money. I've always, we've always done things that interested us. So hey, don't get me wrong, the money's nice, you know. You can't do without it, especially in a place like Hong Kong. But that was never, believe it or not, the thing that drove us. Because when when we, when we started King and Country, uh, which started in 1983 before Mad Dogs. That didn't make money. In fact, they probably lost money for the first 12 years of its existence. However, because we had other business interests, that helped support it. So, you know, money was never the prime driving force. You had mad dogs, first of all, in this, as you say, this three-storey Victorian building Mm. in Central. So um, at that time, I mean, how much was there of uh, Lang Kwai Fong? Oh, 1997. There was a place called Night School, which then became Scotty's. There was a Thai restaurant, I think. California was there. Oh, disco, disco. Was that a sort of disco age in Hong Kong? Which you could say in generally, uh, but we uh, we used to love putting on live bands and things like that, and we would bring people out from the UK to play in Mad Dogs and Joe Bananas. I always loved live music in a pub. Having said that, I always also state that running the pubs was never my major responsibility that was Laura, she had the knowledge she had the skill and the abilities Um, I was the graphic design I was the toy soldier guy although I I did help maybe in the design uh, of, of the pub and things like that with Joe Bananas again, that's I mean, that, has that always stayed in the same position in Wan Chai? Yeah, yeah. J- JB's, uh, which opened in '86, has always been in that location, great location. But again, we, we'd had such a success with Mad Dogs that you always think, well, the next one's going to be a big success as well. And, and we really thought that JB's from day one would be a big success. But the first twelve months were terrible because it was the first bar. In, certainly in one side, the door policy. If you weren't wearing a shirt for a guy with a collar, it could be a golf shirt, it could be a casual shirt, but a collar. No T-shirts, no vests, you weren't allowed in. And boy, did that create a big stink. But Laura's view was always, I'd rather have my place half full of people I like than full of people I don't like. We brought out uh, a young Scottish DJ called Brian Dock from Glasgow and Brian was one of the most brilliant DJs I've ever known in my life it's one thing to have a full house, the pub's full and a great atmosphere but if you could have a great atmosphere on a wet Monday night and you've only got 20 people in your pub and he would get up on stage and he would make that into a party we also brought out a band called Thieves Like Us which uh, the lead singer was another uh, Scottish friend called Davy Cahoon. And Davy's still in Hong Kong, still playing bars, and great musician, terrific singer. That was the start of Joe Bananas turning around. And within a relatively short time, it was standing room only. You then, um, I mean, obviously your king and country mm. has expanded. So tell me a bit more about that. Well, how that came about was originally 
as a wee boy growing up in the 50s and 60s in Scotland, I'd collected toy soldiers like most little boys did in those days. Uh, but I forgot all about them. By the time I got to 14 and 15 and started being interested in the opposite sex, toy soldiers went out the window. But in about 1980, my brother Gordon, who still w- works with me here in Hong Kong, sent me as a gift a little box set of Royal Marines as a Christmas gift. So I just fell in love with these little figures and I said, you know, get me some more. So I started collecting and that went on for about three years. And uh, every time Laura would go back to the UK, she'd bring me something back. But it was it was terrible. This is pre-internet days. So you would then paint them? No, no, these were already painted. I, I, uh, these were not the connoisseur ones. These were toy soldiers. So you actually then set up battles on your dining table? No, or? really. No, I just, I, I mean, you. I, if you look around, you'll see displays. I mean, people do play war games with them, but they're a wee bit big for war games. I would send off to these little mom-and-pop companies in the UK mostly an order, and it might take three weeks, three months. I think nine months was the longest I ever had to wait, and it was terrible. And one day Laura said, look, this is Hong Kong. This is the toy capital of the world, as it was then in the early 80s. Why don't we make our own? So we got in touch with the TDC, Trade Development Council, any companies in Hong Kong can still make all-metal hand-painted toy soldiers? They found one up in North Point, and that was the beginning. We went up. But this place was like something out of Charles Dickens. It was it was Dickensian. It looked like um, Fagin's hideout. You know, it, oh, but they did make toy soldiers. That developed, and that was the beginning of King and Country. So how did you make them? Well, the, I design all the figures. I'm not a sculptor, but I sketch them all out. And then I give them to a sculptor, and he sculpts a master figure in resin or in clay. And that is then put into a rubber mould, silicone rubber mould. Then when that's taken out, they pour molten metal in. That comes out, it's cleaned off, and then it's hand-painted. Pure and simple. And this was first done in North Point? Done in North Point here, but then by the late 80s, China was opening up. So we were the first company really to move into China to manufacture toy soldiers. I like to think we pioneered that, and since then, you know, quite a few of our competitors around the world have followed us. So you went to Shenzhen? Went to Shenzhen, found a factory there that was willing to do it, and it just blossomed and grew from that. But it was a it was it was not an overnight success. As I mentioned earlier, the company began in eighty three. I, I would say we didn't really make any money until about ninety four, ninety five. So why was that? We just weren't good enough. At that time we were mostly copying or aping other people's ideas. And it was only when we started developing our own ideas. Like well, Lots of our competitors were doing things like Zulu War, Napoleonics, Ancient Romans, whatever it might be. But it was really the dim and distant past. And I decided that I wanted to do World War II. I wanted something more contemporary that I had knowledge of. So we began producing uh, Second World War figures and it just hit the market at the right time, at the right place. Plus, movies like Saving Private Ryan were coming out and uh, things like that, and that really helped boost us. And what about your Hong Kong streets? Well, one thing I noticed, I used to work in a shop in Pacific Place uh, every Saturday morning, or sometimes all day Saturday, and couples would come in. Now, the guy 
could spend two hours just looking around the shelves. But after five minutes, the wife or girlfriend was going, come on, let's get the hell out of here. I thought, I need something that women might find attractive. So I cast around for ideas. I knew that some of our competitors in the UK were doing things like Victorian street scenes. And that got me thinking. And then, of course, I thought, well, we could do that, but it's not really original. What about doing something relating to Hong Kong? And and all those lovely four major books that show Hong Kong as it used to be, I had all of those. Let's do Streets of Old Hong Kong. And we originally thought it would appeal to women, but also uh, tourists. It's a nice little gift from Hong Kong. What surprised us was the number of local Chinese that started collecting. I mean, Streets of Old Hong Kong is now our single largest collection that we do. It's maybe not always the most popular. It obviously sells here in Hong Kong. It sells to a limited extent outside of Hong Kong. But things like World War II are much more popular internationally. But here in Hong Kong, it's one of the mainstays of our shop in Pacific Place. And we've got a huge 24-square-foot display in the shop showing a complete street scene. So this street that you you have a big display of, is it a set street in Hong Kong? No, no, it's actually a collection of streets. You know, so you'll you'll find you'll find Blue Pool Road next to Stanley Main Street. <laughs> almost no, it's it's meant to be. I, I wish we could do a gigantic. One of my ambitions would be to do a one thirty scale model of Hong Kong Island with all of our figures and tram cars and sampans and what have you. But but we we need a museum to put it into. With King and Country, do you then regularly come up with new ideas or? Every single month. Okay. I mean, literally, we're one of the few companies that, that regularly release new product over a wide, wide range of subjects, everything from ancient Egypt and Rome all the way through to the Crusades. To so has it been quite a history education? Well, it, it has been for me. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I've always loved history and I've always felt that, that for people, there, there's lots of people out there that actually enjoy history. And it's not, a, to me, it's certainly not a dry, boring subject. It, it's a very live subject. And I like to think that we try to introduce some education into our models. Have you done a Battle of Hong Kong? Um, we've done a series, we launched a series last year, which was the fall of Malaya, Singapore and Hong Kong. And later this year, we'll be launching uh, our first uh, range of figures of Canadians that fought in the Battle of Hong Kong. Because obviously, from my old days in the volunteers, I was very much involved when veterans would come in to Hong Kong and going on battlefield tours. And in those days, there were still quite a few veterans around, sadly, disappearing fast. But you you met some of these guys, and I've always been fascinated by the Battle of Hong Kong itself. Historically, defeats interest me more than victories. Victory is easy when everything's going your way, but it's the defeats when everything is falling apart and you try to think, now, what would I have done if I'd been in that situation? Would I have done it any differently from the guys that were there? Or would would I have gone here? Would I have gone there? Uh, the Battle of Hong Kong is one of those fascinating little campaigns because it, obviously I'm based here, I live here. I've been in most of the battle sites. I've been up at the Shingmun Redoubt. 
I've been out in Stanley. I've been at Repulse Bay Hotel. So I, I, I know all the places. I've walked over them. And you think, now, what, what, if I had been a junior officer, would I have told my men to go a different way or would I have done something different? It's fascinating. And you're always finding out new things all the time. My thanks to Andy Nielsen, former Royal Marine, Hong Kong police officer, volunteer, portrait painter, graphic artist, pub owner and king and country ideas man. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>